Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. Raghuram Rajan has an unparalleled view into the social and economic consequences of globalization and their ultimate effect on our politics. Rajan's background is extraordinary. He served as chief economist at the International Monetary Fund and head of India's Central Bank. He's written several books, including one that won the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Prize for Best Business Book in 2010. Today, he's the Catherine Dusak Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Rajan's new book is an important must-read that explains the dangerous connections among inequality, globalization, and populism, and just might change the way you think about the markets, government, and local communities. It's titled The Third Pillar, How the State and Markets Are Leaving Communities Behind. What made this conversation so good is not just what Rajan says, but how he tells the story. As Rajan puts it, quote, All economics is actually socioeconomics. All markets are embedded in a web of human relations, values, and norms. Throughout history, technological phase shifts have ripped the market out of those old webs and led to violent backlashes and to what we now call populism. Eventually, he writes, a new equilibrium is reached, but it can be ugly and messy, especially if done wrong. Before my conversation with Professor Rajan, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these working capital conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Raghuram Rajan. Professor Rajan, thanks so much for uh, joining me. I appreciate your time. Most welcome. So there is so much in your book and your thinking. But to my mind, if I had to, I would boil it down to the concept of balance and the need for balance and the loss of balance that occurs. And I, I think to get into that conversation, we really need to understand the three pillars. So w- what are the three pillars and what does it look like when they operate in harmony? Well, uh, in a sense, this uh, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This book is about the kind of balance that capitalism needs to work. And, and, it's really a balance between the three pillars that hold society up. Uh, I would argue they are f- first the the state, um, in other words, the political pillar, then markets or the economic pillar, and finally the community, uh, the social pillar, uh, but also in some sense in the modern world, the democratic pillar. Mm. And uh, all three work to enhance the other pillars, but also to constrain them. And if you think about the kind of society that emerged in the West in uh, in the post-war era, uh, the liberal market democracies, in many ways they worked because these pillars held each other in balance. And what happens every so often to upset the balance is either great calamity, uh, one could argue that the Black Death, the various industrial revolutions and uh, the two great depressions in the one in the 19th century and one in the 20th century, all of them uh, jolted the system and uh, required the system to change. Today, the um, uh, information and communications technology revolution is forcing us uh, again to think about 
whether the system actually works and what needs to change to restore the balance. And, and that's really the, the question before us today. It, it you know, it sounds, and, and I don't know if you have an interest in this type of area, um, but I almost hear a, a Star Wars type theme that something external occurs to disrupt the force or the balance, some, some exogenous uh, event, whether that's a catastrophe like the bubonic plague, which you note, or um, a technolo- technological change like the ICT revolution, the, the, uh, you know, the communications and technology, and something knocks that balance um, and knocks the force out of place. I, I've, I've got a question. I want to ask you about the history a little bit, but, but before we get to it, and I don't want to jump too quickly to the punchline, but your focus and, and the subtitle of your book, um, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind, um, you, are, you are clearly focused on the community. But we li- – Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's, but, but, and, I, and again, I don't want to get too much to the punchline because we'll, we'll get there. But we live in a globally interconnected time, obviously. And we'll talk about how things are shifting from populism to nationalism to trade partnerships and tariffs. But many argue that these shifts are exactly what happens as a world manages through a new internationally integrated reality. And so g- given that, why at the highest level? Why is now the moment to think hyper locally rather than globally? Well, it's action and reaction. Uh, the action that we've seen over the last few years is, as you uh, correctly point out, a globally integrated economy where the cost of doing business at a distance is falling, where because markets are being uh, becoming much more integrated across countries, there is an equal pressure for the state to become not just more powerful at the national level, but more powerful at the international level. Uh, international bureaucracy is getting stronger, international agreements getting stronger, uh, a lot being determined at the global level rather than at the local level. And, and that uh, does a couple of things. One, it disempowers the local. Uh, power shifts mm. up uh, towards the national and the international level, uh, which then gives the local a very little sense of agency of being able to do anything uh, about Uh, the forces that are hitting them. And second, because the local is extremely important to prepare people for capitalism, for for the market economy, to prepare them in schools, in community colleges, and so on, and at the same time, it is important as a sort of safety net. If uh, the official safety nets don't work, if they're Uh, is a local calamity. Big businesses shut down locally. Uh, There is very little work. People come together to help because unemployment insurance goes only so far uh, because uh, not too many people have other sources of uh, of income. And so there is a need for collective insurance at that point. So the local becomes much more important. uh, But if it's not working, if it is, uh, if the community is breaking down, if it is dysfunctional, it also doesn't act as a support. And then you have people faced with the full force of globalization, but very little to go back to. And, uh, you know, what's the alternative at that point? They get angry. And we're starting to see that anger, and you talk about that. And and that's one of the 
big concerns and big threats to, I, I think, and I'm paraphrasing you, to society writ large, that that, that anger um, can be one of the, the driving forces. Help us, help me understand how we got here. I mean, you, you talked about the various types of catastrophes and, and uh, external impacts or changes. You've, you've noted that the one I, well, is, is it fair to say that the one that we're dealing with now is the digital revolution? Um, it, but it, it's more than that. It's also globalization. So how, how do you see the digital revolution interacting with globalization? And, you know, I, I guess, wh- why is it bad? If you so, so what happened? And then talk to me a little bit about why it's bad, because I'm sure uh, many of your colleagues locally there at the University of Chicago can explain all of the reasons why markets work perfectly and the results of globalization and digital uh, transformation have been excellent. Well, uh, it, it has its good and bad sides. So <laughs> let's let, let's talk first about what, what happened yeah. uh, and why they connected. I mean, to some extent, we've uh, entered a period of of uh, what some people call hyper-globalization. Uh, it's not just about producing for exports or importing goods. It's also producing back and forth across borders through global supply chains, which sends stuff um, you know, to Germany uh, to form part of a car, the engine block comes back uh, to, uh, you know, goes to France, then gets added on, etc., etc. Uh, nothing is entirely produced within a country anymore. And we need to understand that that is part of the digital, um, the uh, information and communications technology revolution, because now it's possible to control these global supply chains. Uh, Earlier, you were worried about producing in Thailand uh, for your plant in the United States, because what happens if uh, there is some blockage? Uh, It takes time to get to know that there is a problem. It takes time to fix it when you don't have the kind of communications uh, that we have today. Uh, But today, with that kind of of interlinkages uh, and that uh, quality of communication, you can run these global supply chains very effectively. So you can produce in the most efficient parts of the world. Now, why is that important? Well, what that has done is it's, uh, in a sense, uh, when you look at the supply chain, the pieces that should belong in the developed countries most are the pieces where there's tremendous value added because of knowledge, because of intellectual property, the design parts, uh, the uh, the financing parts, the marketing parts, which are the parts that least belong in the developed countries where labor is required, labor is cheaper, and sometimes equally qualified in some of the developing countries, whether it's China or Vietnam or Thailand. And so uh, the the supply chain has been broken up with the uh, very high value-added parts uh, retained in the industrial countries, the low-value-added parts sent abroad. Well, who does this affect? This affects the manufacturing worker. So that's one um, constituency which has often been adversely affected by the process of globalization. And this has been happening for the last 30, 35 years. Of course, there are new jobs being created. Uh, But many of these jobs require higher skills. Uh, The old welder doesn't work anymore, but the new computer trained technologist has a job in uh, in Boeing uh, or companies like that. So there has been this uh, significant shift away from the low skill 
to the high-skilled jobs in the industrial countries, and the the effects have been felt in the small towns, uh, in the rural areas across the industrial world. So that's that's one effect. The the other is, through technology is uh, what one might call winner takes most um, jobs uh, because technology expands your reach. Um, one person can now uh, do a job for many, uh, perhaps by writing the appropriate software or the AI, uh, AI program, which displaces many others. The rents go to fewer people. Um, these winner-take-most professions used to exist primarily in uh, entertainment. Uh, it used to be the case that an opera singer in the United Kingdom, the most famous opera singer in the United Kingdom in the early um, uh, 1800s, used to make something like a uh, million uh, dollars in today's money uh, for performing the entire season. Uh, mm. And, you know, that was considered um, a, a huge salary at that time. And, and of course, today in the United Kingdom, uh, Adele uh, makes something like uh, uh, 100 million pounds. Uh, that's uh, many, many times what uh, opera singers used to make at that time. Uh, this kind of expansion in the salaries of those who affect a lot of people, because the the professions have become more winner-take-most. You prefer to listen to a singer on the radio today rather than go to your local theater or your local community community hall to hear a local singer. Uh, that's happened across many professions. Uh, you want to hire the best, and therefore the returns to capabilities have also increased tremendously. So both those things globalization as well as the returns to capabilities because of the winner-take-most uh, nature of professions have increased the returns high up in the scale but have reduced the jobs as well as the salaries in the middle and the lower middle of the scale. Was there anything that could have or should have been being done during that transformation. So in, in taking the two areas, the um, dislocation of low-skill, middle-skill workers and, and what happened there, and, and then separately the, the winner takes most, uh, you know, was it that the technological change and the, the effects of globalization happened too quickly and so our political structures and maybe even our market structures couldn't react quickly enough in terms of retraining. You talked about po perhaps the manufacturer who, you know, laborer who takes a job instead at Boeing, and but that takes a lot of retraining and, and, and that sort of thing. So did, that, did it occur too quickly for the state or the markets, one of, two of those pillars, to react? Um, on the other hand, the winner takes most. Is that not the market working is that you know if we you know if i really love adele and i'm willing to support her at 100 million pounds you know per season um is you know or the ai developer or the uh trader at you know solomon brothers is that bad isn't that the way you know it, it, did the market work the way it's it's meant to so I, I realize those are two different questions but you kind of identified right. two different areas of the of the spectrum right. 
No, I, I think the market's working as it ought to. Uh, the market is essentially expanding opportunities, and in this case, it's expanding opportunities for some. It could expand opportunities for many more if the other two pillars worked properly. And this is where I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, people don't enter a market at birth. There's a process of preparing them for the labor markets. There's a pr process by which they go through schools. They maybe go on from schools to colleges. And eventually, at some uh, uh, early adulthood, uh, they enter the labor market fully prepared to engage in it. And that's when they take, uh, uh, they take advantage of the opportunities it creates. The problem, I think, has been that on the one hand, our ability to prepare people has been weakening. Uh, the quality of the schools varies considerably across regions in every country. The schools uh, in New York, and even in New York, there's a lot of variety, but in general, schools are better in New York than perhaps they would be in Oklahoma uh, or Alabama in, in the United States. And similarly, you, you see the same sort of disparity in Europe. Uh, the schools in London are better than the schools uh, in, in more rural areas. Um, so one, people don't get prepared the same way. And the markets, as we talked earlier, are much more demanding of skills than they used to be in the past. Um, a lot of people enter college, for example, in the United States, but many drop out because they haven't had appropriate training in the schools and they simply cannot take the courses that the co colleges uh, offer, even if they choose the right college and the right course uh, and get in, they simply uh, don't succeed because their early training is, is not adequate. So in a sense, the state and the community, which is supposed to prepare people for markets, has been failing. And this is not a recent phenomenon. It's We've known that this is a process for the last 30, 35 years. It's only with the kinds of elections we've had and the message that uh, people outside the big coastal urban cities have been sending saying, look, you've left us behind. Uh, pay attention to our, our problems, whether in the United States or in France or in, your, in Britain through uh, the Brexit vote. These are all people sending the message, We're, we've been forgotten, take care of us. And you write about how they have been forgotten, how the the incentives exist for the successful, particularly I think in a winner-takes-most environment where the winners want to exit the failing communities. And I took I – and you just kind of explained it right there. There's this – evil, I guess, is a, a judgmental statement, but, but there's a, a detrimental multiplier effect, I think, where the successful want to be with the – within successful and, and burgeoning communities, leaving the crumbling communities or slightly failing communities to go on perhaps an accelerated path downward, further deepening the, the gap. So if that gap was, you know, measured at, at two inches, you know, 30 years ago, it's now at, at, to exaggerate the point, multiple miles because of exactly what you just described. Am I understanding? Absolutely. Uh, because the market is creating such high returns uh, to being well-educated, Today, uh, you know, a upwardly mobile couple looking around to see where they want to live 
um, so that the kids have uh, the best possibilities for the future, are going to look for communities which have rich, upwardly mobile couples like them. Because one of the most important factors in how well you do in school is not so much the teacher. It's, it's not even the school. It's the kids around you. And how eager they are to learn, how prepared they are to learn, because that also sets the uh, the, the level at which the teacher can teach the class. So uh, essentially, if you're looking for people like you, uh, there is this sorting that takes place. And you can see it in the data that uh, if you look uh, across communities in the United States, there used to be much more grouping around the middle. Uh, and today mm. there's there's there are far more communities in the extreme, extremely poor communities and extremely rich communities. And you can see that one of the big factors in driving this is really couples with kids uh, because they're going to where, you know, uh, if, if I were uh, deciding today, uh, fortunately, my kids are grown up. But if I were deciding today uh, just on the basis of what would be best for them. In a reasonable metric would be what is the highest priced housing I can afford, because that tells me what other parents would be around in that neighborhood, how much time and energy they can devote to preparing the kids at an early age for school and how successful my kids will be in that school because they're surrounded by kids like that. It's not just winner takes most individuals and workers. It's winner takes most communities. Absolutely. So, so we are, uh, one of the, uh, sort of tragedies is that we are reaching that nirvana for the middle class, the, the meritocracy. But unfortunately, it's becoming a hereditary meritocracy. It, only a few, uh, the upper middle class can achieve that. And because the path to that, uh, that success is largely blocked, for people outside the small group who can go to those really good schools, um, the the anger is uh, is exploding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that anger. Um, and and on that previous point, you write about the pulling up of the ladders once uh, once one meet re, you know reaches a successful area or a successful level, the pulling up of the ladders to kind of block others from from reaching as well. And that is part of what leads to the anger. So you, you, you talk about that. Um, and you outline circumstances in which popular resentment can turn to rage. What does that look like? I think we can all kind of imagine what that looked like. But what are maybe what are the the precursors to it? We can imagine what it looks like in its ultimate state. We've all seen pictures of uh, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, etc. Um, yeah. But but what are, what do the symptoms look like? And how close to that rage exploding do you feel we are? Well, the, the different forms of that rage, right? There is the uh, the populism of the left, which uh, essentially says, "Look, uh, we are not getting the opportunities in the market uh, that we ought to. Uh, perhaps because uh, we're not being prepared, our our schools are failing, and, and therefore, uh, you know, in the United States." Uh, uh, the the social contract has always been we prepare you for the markets and therefore we don't have too much of a safety net. Um, we don't have uh, strong unemployment insurance. We don't have, um, you know, universal health care because we expect that you'll figure it out 
given that you've been prepared for the market. And and that, I thought, was always the U.S., uh, the, the social contract in the United States, very strong schooling, uh, but then you let loose and you make of your life what you will. The safety nets are relative, relatively thin, though, of course, they've been strengthened over the years. Today, however, when you're not prepared for the markets, then the clamor comes for a much stronger safety net. Uh, if, in fact, we're not being prepared, then what about these other things that we've left uh, with big holes, uh, universal health care, um, you know, much stronger unemployment insurance uh, and uh, perhaps other forms of transfers? Now there's a lot of talk of a universal basic income. So that's that's. Uh, the populism of the of the left, the populism of the right is uh, is a little um, um, different because it's not so much saying uh, that I want handouts. Uh, in fact, there is a sense uh, amongst the uh, the community that's being targeted by the right wing populists uh, that you are the chosen. Uh, you have always been the strong in this country. The reason you're not doing well is because the the elites have messed things up for you. And so uh, what we need to do is uh, essentially create a much more level playing field, make sure that all these people who've got extra benefits, the immigrants, the the minorities, uh, that they put back in their place, uh, even while making sure that those cheaters from abroad who are sending their goods here without, uh, you know, uh, playing by the rules, that their stuff is also kept out. So it's a, it's a protectionist, nativist agenda. Uh, and you can see similar themes uh, across Europe uh, as well as in, uh, in, uh, in the United States. And uh, these are two somewhat different um, sort of reactions. But unfortunately, I think neither of them uh, recognize the fact that really what the com- what, what is needed is strengthening the community to to help people actually participate in full measure in this globalized economy. Which leads me to the key question: What is inclusive localism? Well, I I argue that. Uh, uh, we have to give a stronger sense of agency back to the community. Uh, and um, in a sense, the the problem we have uh, in many developed countries is we have strong pockets of underdevelopment. Uh, we have uh, communities with very little economic activity because the big firm has uh, has left town or, or left the country uh, for Mexico or China. And uh, this is not much different uh, from the problem of underdevelopment uh, in countries. How do you revive the community so that there is economic activity, so that there is um, a, um, uh, you know, better local institutions like schools and so on? Um, and to do this, uh, I think if you take the lesson from successful communities that have revived themselves, that have pulled themselves up, uh, there has to be a much greater sense of agency in the community. So, yes, the the federal government is important or the state government is important. And, uh, you know, them helping with the resources when, when needed is, is useful. But ultimately, the agency has to come from within the community, a sense of here's who we are, here's what we need to do, here's how we revive ourselves. Uh, the story of successful communities always comes from the community pulling itself up. And and so to that extent, I argue 
we need to restore their ability to do that, perhaps by moving more funding into the local community and sometimes more powers that have been taken away. That's the localism part. But the worry in in strengthening communities is always the sense that they become parochial, they start erecting walls around the community, they benefit much less from being part of a integrated nation. And that's the inclusive part. That is, we need them not to raise high walls. Low walls is okay to preserve the sense of community, but raising high walls, keeping out goods from the rest of the country, uh, keeping out people from other places, that doesn't make sense. That's not uh, something that uh, will allow it to benefit from being part of a, a larger nation. And that's where both the state and the markets work to make the community inclusive rather than the exclusive traditional parochial communities of, of the past. And again, uh, the example I give in the introduction of the Pilsen community is one example of of such an inclusive community. Yeah, the uh, the west side of Chicago. But but you 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 are really arguing for or, or describing it, the best of the best of both worlds or the best of all worlds. Where <laughs> and it, it you know we we all want that. We all want the best of of all right. worlds. We all want um, you know our, our cake and we want to eat it too. How do you what, – what, what is the magic, if you will, what is the incentive to entice communities to bind themselves together towards some tor- sort of nationalist goal, collective goal? How do you, how do you create – how do you keep from reverting – how do we keep from reverting? And I know you kind of just were, were talking about this because this is the big concern to becoming a, a feudal, a, a feudal society, a set of societies with the high walls where, um, you know, and, and the interest of interacting with other localities extends only so far as, uh, maybe a little bit of local trade, maybe, you know, there's some, some natural good that, uh, you know, the other local community is, is on, uh, Lake Michigan on the shore, whereas Pilsen is, you know, on the west side, so closer to, uh, Chicago Stadium and you get to watch the Bulls and the, the Blackhawks. And so fine, there's a trade. I'll trade you some access to the Lake Shore, uh, you know, the, the Lake, Lake Michigan and you give me some Bulls tickets. But, but how do you, how do you entice a broader relationship than that if you're putting power, so much power, back into the local communities. Right. And and this is where the balance is, again, the critical word, right? You need uh, more more of a sense of agency in the local community, but not so much that uh, the community can essentially become a feudal um, locality with high walls around it and uh, and keeping out everything else. Now, um, what is important to consider is the alternative that we're going towards, which is very worrisome, uh, where because we have no, uh, in many communities uh, which are breaking down, we have no sense of community identity of community health, um, the identity that seems to b- work then as an alternative is is a more nationalistic uh, majoritarian identity, people like me at the national level. And, and that's a dangerous uh, um, process because what that works on is exclusion. Uh, it is only uh, the Hindu majoritarian 
in India who is the true born and everybody else is uh, is outside uh, and um, um, you know not deserving of first uh, first level citizenship uh, that's a dangerous path for countries to take because uh, eventually um, you know once you've uh, reduced the internal enemies to uh, uh, second class citizens then you look outside to reduce the uh, to look for enemies outside to bind your majority together because there's really very little binding that majority hindus are very different in different parts of india so to bind them you have to find external enemies so uh, this is a a dangerous movement in in every country and i would rather that we found identity in the local community um, yes it may be a community largely of hispanics it may be a community which is largely uh, white or or african american uh, but it doesn't keep out other people and that's where the national laws come in that uh, you cannot discriminate uh, but there may be a tendency for people to come together who have uh, you know similar beliefs a lot of cities will be very mixed uh, people uh, of different communities living together but some communities may want to live with people of their own uh, of who they think uh, are their own kind it seems to me this is far less dangerous especially if the walls around the community are porous uh it gives people a sense of identity it gives people a sense of agency it may be that we at least for a while will live side by side in different communities and eventually we'll cross over into each other's community but the alternative of finding the only community at a national level uh with internal enemies and external enemies which is what we are drifting towards is extremely frightening and is something we have to combat would someone push back on you professor and say that sounds wonderful and now let me go through the history of local communities that have been created by the religious or racial identities of those people whether that's iraq or the US or other places in the Middle East or India and I can show you throughout history the ways in which uh creating local communities based on identities has not only has not worked but has resulted in fighting war increase in hatred racial and and so yeah it'd be great if if we had a world where they, that could all occur and everyone could just get along which is what you're describing and maybe there's some civic nationalism that ties people together but where's the you know you've got a couple of examples you know Galena the Pilsen neighborhood indoor in India but historically is is history on your side can that actually work well i i i think it it can be uh and um I I think that um what what we're missing in this is that uh, the nation has to be uh, a nation that allows for all communities and allows for intermingling that's where the civic nationalism comes it doesn't anoint a particular community as the national community some of these examples you offered were essentially examples of countries where there is this one dominant community uh, there is one dominant religion and everything else is excluded uh, uh, in in favor of that and that to my mind is the is the danger we have to avoid 
in, in uh, certainly in the West, but also in, in in a number of emerging markets. And the answer, it seems to me, is at the national level of binding together through the national constitution, through the civic nationalism, uh, through the anti-discriminatory uh, laws that are in place. But at the local level, the possibility that if you do want to, let, nothing prevents anybody else from coming into this community. But if the uh, Mexican-Americans want to live together in Pilsen, uh, yes, they live. But now increasingly, uh, whites are coming into Pilsen and they, they find a way to live together. And uh, this is not a pipe dream. I mean, there are many neighborhoods uh, in the United States. Uh, uh, Jackson Heights is an example where many communities live together side by side. And over time at the borders, they mingle more and more. And eventually it becomes a multiracial, uh, multiethnic community. And uh, I think this is the history of the United States, how the melting point happens, uh, melting pot happens. And w- all I'm arguing for is that uh, we send a few more powers into the community, more funding, so that there is more of a sense of agency to combat the kind of uh, of disappearance of powers that happens as markets integrate and governments want to grow side-by-side uh, side with markets. Is it fair to characterize what you're describing as local monoculturalism yet nat- national multiculturalism or are you describing something where yes there may be local monoculturalism but it holds open the possibility for integration as you just described as maybe happening a little bit in the Pilsen neighborhood well i would love for there to be local multiculturalism and i i, I think there will be plenty of it uh, all i'm saying is we shouldn't rule out the possibility of local monoculturalism also uh, to slake the appetite of those who want to preserve their culture who find that their culture is being eroded by foreign uh, elements uh, that they weren't used to in the past if they want to preserve it that way by all means let them try and preserve their culture that way but by allowing communities to live side by side, you essentially uh, make it such that one community doesn't have to force its culture on the other. And that is the danger to my mind that many multicultural societies now face because uh, in the, the, the majority community feels that the, its culture is escaping. Uh, it thinks the only way to preserve that is to establish it at a national level and force it down on everybody. You're not allowed to say uh, Feliz Navidad. You have to say Merry Christmas because otherwise somehow we will lose uh, our our cultural heritage. And that to me is uh, is extremely dangerous and uh, uh, probably uh, even problematic for the majority community. Hmm. And to close out, Professor, the question of finding a new balance where are we in your sense on that path? Is the pendulum still swinging away from that new balance? Do we have more division to go? Um, or do you, are you starting to see the signs that the new balance is possible? Um, you know, where, where are we? Well, I think the questions are being asked very strongly. I, I, I see one of the uh, virtues of democracy is that, uh, uh, you know, when the pressures have mounted enough, uh, 
you see a vote which makes you ask, well, why did people vote this way? I think the 2016 election in uh, in the United States, the Brexit vote, uh, the ongoing concerns in France, all these are suggesting that things aren't aren't working. They've come to a boil. So the questions are being asked. Now I think the uh, we, we have to provide answers, and the answers are not you know some more monetary stimulus or some more fiscal stimulus. It is about rethinking our societies. Uh, how have we got here? Um, what kind of societal change do we need in order to accommodate the society of the future that is coming? And uh, my wo- worry is that uh, unless you know these questions are forced upon us, we tend to ignore them uh, because, after all, much of the problem is in the flyover states. Uh, and uh, but once they they hit us. Uh, our initial impulse is to go to the old tried and tested answers, but I, I think we need radical answers and we need to think of how society should look going forward uh, and we need to make it a society that works for all. So so um, I think we're at the point where uh, we actually realize there are serious questions. Uh, answers, uh, this is, book is an attempt to force people to say, well, let me think about my answer. Uh, because I don't agree with any of the answers that uh, Raghu Rajan talks about, which is fine. Uh, you know, let's start the debate because it's uh, an extremely important one. It's a terrific debate. And, uh, you know, my my condolences to the person who takes their argument straight to your face, because I think that you've uh, thought about this so much. And the questions that you raise and the ideas that you raise in the book, they are important and needed. And uh, I, I thank you for them. Thank you for the book and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.